Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Behind the Knife. This is this is Karen Chabra from Annals of Surgery, and I'm excited to announce another episode of the Annals of Surgery and Behind the Knife collaboration. And this time, we have the pleasure of uh, working with Dr. Michael Brunt, who is Professor of Surgery and Chief of MIS at Washington University in St. Louis um, School of Medicine. He's here to dis- discuss with us a new set of guidelines that recently came out and are being published simultaneously in Annals of Surgery and Surgical Endoscopy. These guidelines are the Safe Cholecystectomy Multi-Society Practice Guideline and State-of-the-Art Consensus Conference on Prevention of Bile Duct Injury During Cholecystectomy. And so he's here, he's here with us to talk about what they've found in, the, in that consensus conference and how we can make sure that we're performing laparoscopic cholecystectomy safely. And we're going to do a little bit of a different format this time around. We're going to do this in an oral boards format and so that we can give you, our listeners, safe oral boards-friendly answers um, that you can use in your own examinations to um, talk about laparoscopic cholecystectomy as we discuss these new guidelines and how, sa- how to safely perform cholecystectomy in your everyday practice. So we're happy to have Dr. Brunton here. Thank you for joining us. So I'll get us started. Uh, Dr. Brunton, um, thanks for joining us. We have a 45-year-old woman who presents to the ER with acute right upper quadrant pain and nausea. She's had 48 hours of pain and nausea non-bloody and non-bilious emesis times three and a subjective fever. Her vitals are as follows. is a temperature of 101.8, a heart rate of 100, a respiratory rate of 15, and a blood pressure of 120 over 80. She's tender in the right upper quadrant. On her labs, she's got a white count of 14,000 and bilirubin and lipase within normal limits. And on imaging, she has an ultrasound showing a gallbladder, a five millimeter gallbladder wall with, pe- with pericholocystic fluid. So Dr. Brunt, what do you do next? So, well, first of all, thank you very much uh, for having me uh, here today. Uh, given the constellation of symptoms in this patient with right upper quadrant pain, uh, fever, she's tender in the right upper quadrant, has an elevated white blood cell count, I would be very concerned about the possibility of, uh, or the likelihood that she has acute cholecystitis. So um, I would want to know uh, what the rest of the liver function tests are. Um, the normal bilirubin doesn't exclude the possibility that this uh, patient could have a bile duct stone, uh, which can present with similar features. And in fact, um, the abnormality that occurs first when somebody acutely obstructs their bile duct is there's an elevation in the transaminase enzymes. So it would be very important to know what the transaminases are, as well as the alkaline phosphatase. Um, the other uh, thing that's uh, not mentioned on the imaging in this patient is whether there's gallstones or not, because the most common cause of acute cholecystitis is a stone obstructing the cystic duct. Uh, besides the wall thickness and pericholecystic fluid, you may see a tender gallbladder. You may see a, a distended gallbladder. Uh, sometimes uh, they'll see a stone impacted in the neck of the gallbladder. And uh, oftentimes we'll describe a sonographic herpes where when they press with the ultrasound probe over the gallbladder, uh, it's locally tender there. So I, I would like that additional information uh, on this uh, patient before proceeding further. Yeah, well, in this patient, 
the her transaminases and her alkaline phosphatase are all within normal limits. And her gallbladder ultrasound does show multiple small echogenic stones in the gallbladder with the sonographic Murphy side. So, um, so this sounds like uh, acute cholecystitis, and I don't think any other imaging is indicated in this patient. Um, the patient should uh, have uh, an IV placed with IV fluids, uh, made NPO, and I would uh, start her on uh, intravenous antibiotics. You could give uh, ciproflagyl or uh, ertapenem, uh, anything like that would uh, be appropriate. Um, and uh, the other information I would like to know is whether this patient has any comorbidities or not. She's 45 years old, so it's important to make sure uh, that she's not pregnant. So I would want a pregnant, pregnancy test and uh, urinalysis. The patient's pregnancy test is negative. She does have a history of asthma and hypertension, and her urinalysis was, un was unremarkable. So, okay, so, um, so she has uh, acute cholecystitis. This would be consistent with grade one acute cholecystitis according to the Tokyo guidelines. This was a topic that was addressed uh, by the uh, consensus conference. And the question was, should immediate cholecystectomy uh, be performed within 72 hours onset of symptoms versus delayed? And the recommendation from the consensus, and this is uh, based on uh, considerable literature on this subject, is that for uh, uh, patients with mild acute cholecystitis, which is a patient appears to have, that uh, laparoscopic cholecystectomy should be performed within 72 hours of symptom onset. So uh, this doesn't mean that the patient needs to be taken emergently to the operating room the moment that, that she comes in. Um, if this patient presented in the evening or middle of the night, uh, I would uh, put her on the antibiotics uh, and IV fluids, make her MPO and uh, schedule her for the operating room uh, the next day. This is actually a favorable time to do it. Oftentimes the inflammation is at the edematous phase uh, and it's much easier to do uh, a cholecystectomy in somebody at this stage than a few days down, down the road. Um, this approach also uh, results in uh, a shorter length of hospital stay um, and um, uh, a reduction in uh, overall cost uh, because the patient's in the out of the hospital uh, much quicker. The other thing that I would uh, do at the time of operation in this patient is a cholangiogram. And one of the other recommendations on the consensus conference is that uh, we suggest performing interoperative cholangiography or other means of imaging the biliary tree in patients with acute cholecystitis uh, who uh, are undergoing cholecystectomy. And that, that's based on uh, a number of studies uh, from the literature. Thank you for that. Now, if we were to change the scenario a little bit, and if the patient had had four days of symptoms, how would your treatment plan change? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and I think uh, for patients with symptoms longer than three days, you really need to individualize the approach. Uh, the reason for the concern, uh, once you get beyond that 72-hour time frame, is that the, the nature and degree of the inflammation uh, can become less favorable for cholecystectomy. Uh, and that's because there's not only increased tissue swelling, but also increased vascularity. And even further down the road, it can become somewhat uh, fibrotic. So uh, one of the uh, uh, recommendations that came out from the consensus guideline 
is that we really should classify the timing of surgery somewhat differently around acute cholecystitis. So, and we've recommended four phases. Phase one is onset of symptoms to 72 hours. Phase two would be 72 hours to 10 days. Inflammation is less favorable, but you can you can do it depending on the circumstances. Um, phase three would be 10 days to six weeks. Um, the uh, conditions are very much less favorable for cholecystectomy during that time frame because of both acute and chronic inflammation. And then phase four is six weeks or later when the inflammation and conditions, again, should become more favorable for cholecystectomy. So, um, so this patient falls into the phase two, 72 hours to 10 days. Uh, four days is earlier in that process. I think you have to look at, um, again, the ultrasound. What does the gallbladder look like? Um, what's the overall health of the patient? If this is a relatively young patient uh, and, uh, and uh, the ultrasound only shows a five millimeter thick gallbladder wall um, and there are no other concerning aspects to it, uh, then I think uh, probably most surgeons would proceed with cholecystectomy at that uh, time frame rather than uh, treating them conservatively and delaying uh, surgery. So I think you can certainly do it at that stage. But it recognized that it may be a more difficult procedure potentially, and be prepared to alter the approach if you get in and that's what you find. Just to jump in there, so what are the patients um, that uh, that uh, in your practice um, you would strain a little bit off of the uh, oral, you know, oral board, mock oral board uh, scenario? But I think that's okay to go off on a few tangents here and there. What are, what are the patients that you in your practice you would delay and do an interval cholecystectomy? Uh, what kind of things on on imaging and, and what kind of patient characteristics uh, are the ones that you would recommend that for? Uh, so um, these would be patients that have a lot more older age, uh, multiple medical comorbidities, who are higher risk for surgery. Uh, have a markedly elevated white count. The number that's been generally considered is over 18,000. Uh, palpable gallbladder on exam, well, that, that can often be difficult to ascertain because of the tenderness. Um, and a markedly thickened gallbladder wall, like 8 to 10 millimeter thickness. So those would be conditions in which uh, delaying surgery would be preferable. And you can uh, manage those patients with antibiotics. Some of them will get better. And, uh, but if they are not, then you may need to decompress the gallbladder with a percutaneous cholecystostomy. So a lot of any, a little bit. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, is there any, so uh, we'll see a lot of these people coming in and, and uh, come to the ER and get CT scans as their initial uh, imaging modality. Is, is there anything on imaging that, that, that portends a, a more difficult uh, case? Any any findings on that CT scan that might give you a clue that uh, maybe this might be somebody that's better off taken care of down the road? Yeah, I, the question is really good one about the, the CT scan because you're exactly right. Um, it's very common patients come in with pain. It may be undifferentiated and they get a CT scan as an initial imaging test. And it's easier to get a CT scan in the emergency room than it is to get an ultrasound. So uh, the findings are similar on CT, uh, but you may see changes that are concerning for gangrenous gallbladder or even a loculated abscess uh, of the gallbladder uh, or emphysematous cholecystitis. In those situations, I would uh, be inclined to proceed quickly to a percutaneous cholecystostomy, uh, assuming that the, uh, it, it appears the conditions aren't favorable for cholecystectomy. 
you can make the argument for empiseminous or gangrenous cholecystitis to go straight to the operating room, but I think you have to individualize the patient and how they're doing and their risk factors for surgery before making that decision. But they're uh, markedly thickened gallbladder wall, a lot of pericholecystic fluid, really high white count, older age of the patient. Those are those are all uh, indicators for uh, managing this conservatively, and those conditions would likely require early percutaneous cholecystostomy and drainage. And the vast majority of those patients get better. To elaborate a little bit, um, when you say you know the phases of, of inflammation and the duration of symptoms, are we referring to constant right upper quadrant pain like acute cholecystitis, or are you also referring to some you know, some, some, a few days maybe with biliary colic, like what goes into that calculation? And then my second question is, um, is there any benefit, you know, say you have decided to proceed with surgery, but the patient's had symptoms for three, four, five days. Are there any indications or benefit to cooling the gallbladder off with antibiotics and then operating within the same admission? So uh, to address the, the first question, um, oftentimes in the studies that are reported, uh, it's from uh, hospital admission to surgery. But really, it's, it, it should be from onset of symptoms to surgery. Now, uh, sometimes it can be difficult to differentiate a patient that's having accelerated biliary colic and having frequent attacks versus uh, somebody who's had continuous symptoms. So really, for acute cholecystitis, these are symptoms that uh, from the time of onset, and they have not abated at all, as opposed to having you know, moderate symptoms one day, being okay for a day or two, another attack, having four or five of these in a week. So really, the, the, the ones that are most unfavorable have had symptoms that have persisted for several days in a row. So you really have to look at the time from the onset um, of uh, symptoms until their presentation. Um, the second, second question was what, remind me? Second question was, um, is there any benefit to cooling off a patient with antibiotics when you do intend to operate? You're not look, you know, you're not going down the cholecystostomy pathway. So the group that um, would probably benefit from uh, antibiotics and delaying surgery are those that are several days into it, six to seven days in. Um, they're not in such uh, condition that they require urgent surgery. And those are the patients that I would try to settle down with antibiotics and then bring them back in six or eight weeks and take their gallbladder out then. It's important to recognize, however, that some of those patients will have a recurrent symptoms and we present before that six to eight week time frame is up. Just to backtrack just for one second, you mentioned in there um, the use of, uh, use of uh, cholangiogram in, in acute cholecystitis. So uh, would you mind ex expanding a little bit of, uh, on the, the evidence that you mentioned on, um, on indications for, uh, for a cholangiogram? So one of the questions that was addressed at the uh, consensus conference was um, the role of uh, intraoperative clangiography uh, and reducing biliary injury. The consensus uh, uh, conference really focused on bile duct injury and not other variables. Um, and there's, uh, there's a lot of data that's out there. Uh, it's not all very high quality data. A lot of it's administrative data from based on coding. And so uh, the recommendations that came out were uh, for uh, patients uh, with 
uh, acute cholecystitis or a history of a chole acute cholecystitis that we suggest the level of use of clangiography uh, during laparoscopic cholecystectomy to mitigate the risk of bioduct injury. Now, this, this is based largely on a, a prospective study of a national database registry from Sweden called Galrics that captures 90 to 95% of all cholecystectomies in that country. And they showed that patients with acute cholecystitis who had interoperative clangiography had a significantly lower risk of bioduct injury than those who did not. So there is evidence on that favor. The other um, aspect of acute cholecystitis, oftentimes the inflammation makes the operation more difficult. And so clangiography can help in sorting out uh, the biliary anatomy. Um, in regard to uh, <clears throat> uh, imaging, um, the other recommendation is if there is a suspicion of bioduct injury, then that's a strong indication to do imaging uh, in order to uh, identify the anatomy and to avoid a higher level of injury. And there's pretty consistent evidence for that across uh, multiple, multiple studies. Okay, so now returning back to our you know, initial scenario with our, <clears throat> our, our, our patient with acute voice, the side acute cholecystitis. Um, so now you're in the operating room, you've safely entered the abdomen, you've taken down some adhesions, uh, but what you found is a, a very severely inflamed gallbladder, uh, specifically uh, down at the, uh, the triangle. Uh, you notice a lot of dense adhesions. Um, uh, this probably isn't our 45-year-old female with, uh, with acute cholecystitis. Now we're probably talking about our our 90-year-old uh, gentleman who came in after 50 years of dyspepsia, um, and, and they're now in the OR. Um, but after about an hour of dissection, you have not been able to identify the hepatocystic triangle. Um, what are some maneuvers? What, where are you thinking now? Um, and what do you do next? Well, one of the one of the first things I do uh, are that you should consider when you get in uh, and are dealing with a distended, acutely inflamed gallbladder is to decompress the gallbladder is the first step with some type of um, needle suction aspiration device. And that allows you to grasp the gallbladder and elevate it for better exposure. If you, if you puncture it early and spill bile and stones all over the place, then it's gonna become a much more difficult uh, case from that point on. So aspirate and decompress the gallbladder first. Um, if uh, you get in there and you can You've got an mental pack. You can only get to the top of the gallbladder. It's just, it's an absolute mess. It's totally socked in. You can't get anywhere. Then uh, it's time to alter the approach and do what's called the bailout maneuver. And what I would do under those circumstances is I would put a surgical tube in the gallbladder. You can use a Foley catheter or something else in the fundus of the gallbladder, decompress the gallbladder and get out. And, and you can come back and deal with that gallbladder on a later day. The more common scenario is what you described. So you can expose the gallbladder, but you get to the hepatocystic triangle and it's just really markedly inflamed and maybe even fibrotic, and you can't safely dissect things out. That is a compelling indication for a, a, one of the various bailout maneuvers. Um, if, you, if you feel like you can see the anatomy enough, you could do imaging, you could do an intraoperative ultrasound, you could do a cholangiogram, uh, sometimes through the neck of the gallbladder, but if the cystic duct's occluded, you're not gonna see the bile duct system. So this is where a bailout approach becomes, I think, uh, an important uh, alteration in the approach to avoid biliary injury. Uh, the various bailout options include converting to open surgery, 
um, doing a subtotal colostectomy or doing a top-down approach. Um, this was addressed in the consensus uh, conference. There have been, with a top-down approach, there have been cases of extreme vascular, combined vascular biliary injuries. And so uh, we've not recommended that. Uh, subtotal cholecystectomy is probably the best surgical option. And it can be done either as a uh, fenestrating or a reconstituting uh, subtotal. We prefer the fenestrating because it leaves the neck of the gallbladder open. So you open the, the gallbladder neck above the hepatocystic triangle. Uh, you remove all stones. You take off the front and the back and the uh, sides of the gallbladder wall. If you can see the cystic duct, you can do a clangiogram through it. If you see the cystic duct, you can oversew it. You should always leave a drain in. So um, the recommendation is uh, when you cannot get the critical view and define the anatomy, that you consider subtotal cholecystectomy over a total cholecystectomy. Now, this can be done either laparoscopic or open, depending on your preference. Um, the traditional uh, answer to a case like this would be that I convert to open operation. But the challenge with that is for surgeons who trained in the last 10 years or so, they have very little experience with a difficult open cholecystectomy and are probably much more comfortable doing things laparoscopically. So a laparoscopic subtotal cholecystectomy is, um, we think, the, the safest uh, bailout under these. Excellent. Um, yeah, that's, that's uh, I, I think I'm, I probably fall under one of those surgeons that has a lot more laparoscopic experience than he does with open gallbladders. And what I found is uh, if you're not, if you're not getting a good view and the anatomy is difficult laparoscopically, it's probably going to you're probably not going to get a good view and it's going to be difficult to open as well. Yeah. Uh, so Dr. Yeah. Brown, you know, a lot of times, you know, what you'll see is, uh, you know, these are, uh, these can be very kind of frustrating and, and, and a little bit, you know, high stress situations. I mean, a lot of times you think it's just a gallbladder and then you get in there and it, it, it turns out to be a, a very difficult dissection. Um, uh, what uh, is uh, something else you can, you know, you, you can do? I know a lot of times uh, surgeons have, have pride and, and uh, have, have difficulty uh, calling for help, but let's say you're a, you're a you know, junior surgeon out there just, just starting your practice. What's uh, an important consideration to remember? Well, I think, I think what you just said, calling for help is really important. And that, it's actually uh, one of the tenets of the Sage's Safe Cholecystectomy Programs, the six-step uh, list of things that surgeons can do to, uh, to reduce the risk of bowel duct injury. And I think calling for help is an important overall concept in surgery. Uh, you know, the learning curve never stops. You get in a situation where it's a very difficult case. You're not making progress. You maybe get some bleeding that you're, uh, that's interfering with the field of view. And, uh, and you think you've seen the anatomy correctly, but not sure I think getting a second set of eyes to come in and an independent view um, can be a very, very helpful strategy under those circumstances. And we as surgeons should never hesitate to, to call for help from one of our colleagues when we're in a situation like that. Perhaps the most important scenario to call for help in is if you think you may have injured the bile duct. Uh, that, I think that's really critical. Now I know you mentioned you discussed in the in the in the guidelines a little bit, um, uh, and uh, I'm not sure. I don't think you guys were able to reach a consensus on this, but uh, we've often talked about it a lot in our practices. Should we be, you know, especially especially in these uh, difficult cases, 
should we be taking pictures of that critical view and that should that become part of, of the record? Um, and what are your thoughts on that? Uh, this is a very controversial area, uh, is how to document the critical view. Um, most surgeons don't mention it in the operative note uh, uh, dictation. And it's been shown that the operative dictations don't uh, very frequently correlate with the actual achievement of the critical view. So I, the best way to document it would be to take uh, photographs or, and or short video clip. Uh, perhaps the more, um, and, and I think the reason that that's of value is because if you're going to take a picture, you're going to probably do a little bit better dissection and make sure you've achieved all three of those elements before you clip and cut. Uh, this was a this was there was a lot of discussion and controversy about this at the consensus meeting, and we did not make a recommendation about uh, document documentation of the critical view uh, for those reasons. Uh, there is a uh, another uh, topic that we addressed was whether there should be a timeout before you clip and cut after identification of the critical view, so that all team members uh, agree that you've got that. Uh, we we uh, the way that we, um, the recommendation that we came up with was actually a, something we suggested for best practice, and that is to have a momentary pause rather than use timeout, which has potential implications for documentation, you know, in the, in the, um, in the patient's record by everybody in the, in the room. So a momentary pause before you clip and cut, and it's just a few seconds to step back and say, okay. Let me let me just look at this again. Am I sure that I have all the elements of the critical view before you clip and cut? So I think it's an easy safety measure that surgeons can adopt that takes very little time and, and may have a positive impact. So to step back before we get to that point, um, what is what is best practice and, and what are uh, safe board's answers regarding the use of intraoperative imaging modalities, you know, to delineate the anatomy? Well, um, there's, there's not been consensus on this, and that's a part of why we address this with the consensus conference. Um, it, um, selective cholangiography is what is most commonly practiced, uh, in the U S and worldwide, uh, for a lot of surgeons, that means they rarely, uh, ever do it. I think there are a number of reasons that doing cholangiography in the training program is important because it's a different skill set. Uh, it's not only being able to do it in a high percentage of cases so that you can really do it when you need to, but also the ability to interpret the uh, images. So um, I think the answer is uh, that when you have uh, uncertainty about the anatomy, when you have, it's perfectly fine to do cholangiography routinely, uh, but not, but it, it, it's, there's no uh, consensus about that. And that is not uh, standard of care to do cholangiography routinely. However, in situations where you suspect the patient may have a bile duct stone, uh, they have a history of gallstone pancreatitis, you find stones in the cystic duct, which we know is associated with a greater risk in the bile duct, uh, the anatomy is unclear, or if there's suspicion of biliary injury, those are the situations in which uh, doing a cholangiogram is warranted, and that would be the appropriate answer for your uh, for the boards if you were answer a question under those specific circumstances. 
and the, the guidelines also mention some newer imaging techniques like endocyan and green and, and near infrared imaging. Um, is it too early to start using those in, in board scenarios? So the, the use of near infrared cholangiography uh, has got a lot of interest. Um, it's, um, this is, um, there's a, one uh, prospective randomized trial that's come out on this topic uh, that shows some uh, superiority uh, in regards to identification of various structures at different time points in the, in the, uh, in the operation when compared to white light alone. There's really no data compared to interoperative clean geography. Uh, the, the value of the near-infrared can be in some of these difficult cases. Um, and so you can actually map the biliary anatomy frequently throughout the operation, whereas cholangiography is a one-time event. Um, and you have to do it after you've done most of the dissection. So near-infrared can allow you to map where the biliary tree is uh, intermittently. Uh, it, is, uh, it is not standard of care. It is not universally available. It requires proprietary imaging. The ICG is widely available, but you have to have a special upgraded imaging system in order to be able to utilize it in the operating room. So, uh, and you have to, and you, you should give the ICG at least 30, 45 minutes before the operation. So, and if you know you're going to have a difficult case and you have near infrared and ICG available, then I think it's very reasonable to use it under those circumstances and it can be helpful as, a, as a, an adjunct to uh, conventional safe dissection techniques and even the use of uh, IOC. Excellent. Well, to, to get back into character and to get back to our case, um, we're back in the operating room now. We perform an IOC and we notice leakage of contrast from what appears to be the common bile duct. So what's best practice and what do we do next? Well, the first thing to do is to step back and take a deep breath. Um, and uh, you probably are uh, Pulse rate goes up a little bit when that happens. And so you know, the thing you control is your breathing. So take some deep breaths and slowly think through this for a little bit. Um, the question, the more common scenario probably is you're seeing bile leaking into the field. Uh, bile leaking on the cholangiogram oftentimes is coming back out the cystic duct. So if you, if you see it on the imaging, you, you need to determine, is this just coming leaking back out the cystic duct where I went in, or is it truly leaking from the bile duct? Um, uh, as I said, more commonly, the scenarios you see bile leaking in the field, and you don't want to leave the opera. You don't want to just, you, you should not just press on with a cholecystectomy when there's ongoing bile leakage. You need to try to sort that out. Is it coming from the gallbladder or is it coming from the, one, from the bile duct? Um, and uh, if you haven't done it, you should do a cholangiogram to try to uh, visualize what the anatomy is. If you find that there, is bile leaking from a tangential injury and it's a relatively small percentage of the bile duct, less than 50% certainly, then you can, you can repair that primarily and leave a drain. Um, the more common scenario that happens, you do the cholangiogram and you only see contrast going distally. And you don't want to leave the operating room with that because, uh, or you don't want to proceed with the cholecystectomy with that because that may mean that the bile duct has been clipped and are even divided already. And, and you want to avoid uh, excision of a bigger portion of the bile duct and risk of injury to vessels in the port of hepatis, 
such as the right hepatic artery, uh, or create an injury that goes up to the confluence. So uh, you've got to see the proximal bile duct. And if you can't, um, there are various things you can do with the catheter. You can pull it back a little bit, reshoot, uh, even put the patient in Trendelenburg. If you can't see the proximal duct, you have to presume that there's a major biliary injury. Um, that is an important scenario in which to call for help. Um, and if you are, there's not an HPV surgeon available with expertise in biliary reconstruction, then the best thing to do uh, is to put in a drain and to send that patient to a center where there's expertise in biliary reconstruction. Um, this is one of the strong recommendations that came out from the uh, consensus conference. Um, when a bile duct injury has occurred, or highly suspected uh, that uh, we recommend the patient uh, uh, be promptly referred to a surgeon with experience in uh, management um, and, um, and availability of a multi-specialty team in managing biliary injuries. Okay. Um, so um, the other aspect of that is if you've created an injury, then you're very emotionally invested in it. It gets, it's hard to, to, uh, to think uh, uh, clearly. And, uh, and so the default of converting to open to sort it out may make subsequent biliary reconstruction more difficult and may even extend the injury. So that should be one other thing I should say about that. Let me just let me say this. I, the, the one exception is if there's associated major bleeding to that, it, it um, one should, uh, if there's a major injury to the right hepatic artery, which would be the most common, uh, it would be best to repair that injury. Uh, ligation of the right hepatic artery can be associated with um, the um, ischemia to the right lobe of the liver and also um, the, the bile ducts. And so that should be avoided. Every effort should be made to repair that injury and to get the appropriate uh, uh, specialist uh, involved, if uh, possible, in order to help you with that reconstruction. That's a good point. If you don't, if we don't mind, we can. If we just for as last thing, we can dive into that a little bit. I think it's a, a very important discussion to have. Is you know during laparoscopic cholecystectomy, um, if you if you if laparoscopically you encounter major you know arterial bleeding, um, uh, you know the the the, the re reflex of a lot of people is to start placing clips. Um, so uh, what are some, some maneuvers and some techniques that you can try laparoscopically to control that? And what is the, you know, kind of the, the next step as far as converting to open? How do you, how do you deal with that major bleeding during laparoscopic cholecystectomy? Uh, uh, if you um, encounter major arterial bleeding uh, during a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, the first maneuver is to try and tamponade that bleeding site. Um, and you may be able to do that with your instruments. You can also insert a mini laparotomy uh, pad through a 12 millimeter port or, a, uh, or a, a sponge. Sometimes that'll help to provide compression of it um, and get control to make sure that you have everything available in the room in order to be able to deal with this. It's, it's critically important to communicate communicate this to the anesthetist. And uh, for most cholecystectomies, we don't do a type and screen. So you need to, to get uh, blood to, 
start the process to get blood set up and available in case you need that. Okay. And I would tamponade this for a bit, then make sure you have good suction and that you've got adequate exposure. If it's, if it's minor arterial bleeding, oftentimes you just tamponade it and then go work somewhere else to, on the dissection for a bit and then come back to it. And oftentimes it's temporarily stopped. You have better visualization and you can deal with it then. What you should not do is be blind replacing clips or even applying thermal energy until you can adequately visualize what you're dealing with. If this is major arterial bleeding that uh, every time you release the pressure continues, you can't get the retraction and exposure, then you should maintain that tamponade and then convert to open operation in order to be able to deal with it. But that's an extremely important point. You, it's going to take a little bit to open the abdomen. And so you want to be able to control the bleeding during that time frame. So at least you or the assistant uh, needs to be keeping pressure on that site to avoid it hemorrhaging while you're opening up. Well, thank you, Dr. Brunt, for this overview of the of laparoscopic colostectomy and how to stay out of trouble and, and what to do if you do get into trouble. So with all that in mind, is there anything else that we need to know about these guidelines? Well, I think, I think uh, there are two things. Uh, one is, I think it's important uh, for us to disseminate this information so that it becomes widely available. Um, and, um, and I think all of you can help uh, disseminate this and talk about it uh, in your uh, training programs and your education conferences. And the second uh, point that I would make is there's still a lot of work to be done. If you read the guidelines, you'll often see that the quality of the evidence in the literature is low or very low. And, and so uh, there's a lot of work to be uh, done to elevate the quality of evidence, to perform careful prospective uh, studies. And uh, if we do that, then I, I'm convinced that we will make uh, this uh, incredible operation, which transforms surgery at the outset of the laparoscopic era into one that's even safer for our patients. Until next time, dominate the day.